Coach Ben. Congratulations on writing the book, and thank you for coming on, man. Yeah, it's great to be on. Like, looking forward to to chopping it up. Where are you calling me from? New York, New York City, Upper West Side, 106 in Riverside. How are we both in New York City? We're not doing this live. I have exactly. bars that do this that give me private floors. We should be doing it together. Yeah, well, I mean, you're busy. Like, you you were hitting me up like, hey, I've got this, this, and this, and my, I, I got that window right here. We can jump on Skype. So I didn't want to, you know, take up any more of your time. Zen and the art of coaching basketball. I felt like the cool kid at school. I always love when I get, like, the early copy of the book. And I was so happy I get the book. Usually I put it into Goodreads, and it wasn't even there. So thank you for giving me an early copy of the book. And uh, congratulations on it, man. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mike. And, and thank you for the, the kind words. You know, when I saw your Twitter feed that you love to travel and you love sports and you have a podcast kind of about those two things, I was like, oh, this this is the podcast for me. And, and, and co- yeah. The intersection of coaching basketball and traveling, traveling to Namibia, which is a country in southern Africa. So those two things, you don't necessarily put those two things together. Although I think it, it, it's a pretty kick-ass story. You DM'd me, and I read the first line, travel and basketball. I didn't even finish reading the article. Thank God it didn't say I ended up killing 50 people because I'm like, this guy's in. I was all in right when I saw that. So, hey, give the plug for the book and where people can get it because it's going to be out now. So give the full plug for everybody. Sure. Title is Zen and the Art of Coaching Basketball, Memoir of a Namibian Odyssey, and it's available on Amazon. You can buy it as an ebook, as a paperback, or as a hardcover. So encourage you to check it out. You can download a sample, read the first chapter or two, see if you like it. And and then if you do, please, please buy it. Like I said, it's a great sports story and it's a story about evolving as a coach and it's a travel story. So for the people in your life, holidays are coming up. If you want to buy a copy for them, I'd appreciate it. And you can definitely do a better job than me. Give me a quick synopsis, synopsis of the book. Yeah, it's about how I changed as a coach. As a young coach, I was modeling traditional, aggressive behaviors that you see a lot of coaches, old school coaches do, people like Bob Knight. And I realized that that method in that way was totally wrong, that coaching doesn't have to be like that, that coaching can be about empowering people, being positive, letting the team lead. And so when I unexpectedly went back to coaching in my late 30s in Namibia and hadn't hadn't thought I'd ever go back to coaching after leaving coaching in my 20s, I was a totally different person, totally different coach. And when I focused on relationships and not on wins and losses, turns out I won more than I'd ever dreamed about. Is this your first book? It's my second book. So it's it's my first like my second my first book was a very short book about a very specific basketball strategy. Uh, it's called Beating Vegas. So that's also available on Amazon if you buy Zen and the Art of Coaching Basketball and click on the author page, you'll see the other book. Um, it was the same kind of thing of, in terms of, I wrote it after the pandemic started and I was, I'd been a university lecturer and I wasn't comfortable with the COVID protocols at my university. So I resigned and I started thinking about, well, I need to do something to, to have some income and knowing basketball and, and knowing stats of a PhD, kind of those two things, I'd never thought about sports betting before. But I thought, well, let me start making picks and see how they do. And they did well. And so then I created a newsletter where people can pay a monthly fee, $50 a month, and and have access to these picks. So the first book I wrote, Beating Vegas, is about that whole journey. When is New York getting gambling? How are we not doing online sports betting? Why are we doing it wrong? Am I right? Yeah, no, it's coming. They, they say by um, – by the Super Bowl. They want to up and running in New York by the Super Bowl. So the legislature has uh, passed it, and now mm-hmm. the state is just 
um, I guess, interviewing vendors, places like FanDuel and DraftKings to see which one they're going to approve for New York. So it's definitely coming. And, and like I said, they want to have it up and running by, by the Super Bowl. Zen and the Art of Coaching Basketball. Did you enjoy the process of writing this book? Yeah, I did. It's funny when you hear, listen to enough interviews with authors, especially authors that have been doing it for a while, there's sort of this almost woe is me, writing is hard, it's so difficult. And yeah, there are challenges, but you know, it's not pouring cement, right? I mean, it's just, <laughs> you get up and you get your coffee and, and uh, you putz around a little bit and then you sit down and, and start working at it. I, I was an English teacher um, before I started working at university, I was an English teacher. So I, I have a lot of experience with sort of teaching the mechanics and the fundamentals of outlining and writing and so I just took the, those skills that I've been teaching others and sort of turned them on myself and did an outline. And then I did something called a writing sprint where I just sit down each morning and for 20 minutes just pour out, type out, just almost stream of conscious, not worrying about punctuation, grammar, spelling, anything. And after you know doing that over, say, two weeks, I have a first draft. Now it's, it's a total mess in terms of <laughs> um, just sentences and everything. But now you have... You sort of have the marble, and now it's just about chipping away at it. Self-published book, and you're one of the people who have – everyone thinks they have a story. Oh, I mm -hmm. did this. It's like, dude, that's not a story. You have a story. How is it to self-publish a book? Is it expensive? Do you enjoy that whole thing? Yeah, great question. And I think one of the things for people thinking about writing a book or, or thinking about publishing, traditional or otherwise, is the, the economics are always hidden. You don't really know. Um, how much things cost, how much you're going to get, and so forth. So I like to just break all that stuff down, be on front street with it. So the cost for, for my first book was $400 to all in to publish. And that was just about $150, no, $300 for a copy edit and $100 for a cover, both of which I got on Fiverr. And then I ended up just redesigning my own cover on Canva. And for this book, Zen in the Art of Coaching Basketball, uh, all in the cost was $1,500. So it's $1,000 to hire a professional editor. So this is my first real book, and I wanted to make sure it was a quality product, professional product. So I hired a professional editor, a guy named Glenn Stout, who's the series editor for this famous book series, The Best American Sports Writing, which was one of my introductions to great writing. And I hired him, so it was $1,000 to engage him, and he was fantastic, like having a master class in nonfiction narrative storytelling. And then it was $500 for the copy edit. And then I designed the cover myself. Just it's, it's the title Zen is in the cover. So it's a very <laughs> Zen like uh, minimalist cover designed that on canvas. So it was $1,500 all in to um, the cost for the book. And then I'll self publish on Amazon for eBooks. You collect 70% of the royalties from Amazon wow. as opposed to 10% traditionally. And then on the paperback and hardcover, you collect 60% of the royalties after the printing cost. So basically, it boils down to I need to sell about 500 books to hit break even. And then everything from there will be profit. Not only make maybe a dollar a copy, but um, even if I sell 1,000 copies, that's, that's $500 profit on a project where I learned a lot and, and I feel like I developed some differing skill sets that, that will be beneficial going forward. You said this is your first real book. Uh, mm -hmm. I have a I have a lot of authors on, and some of them are salty. When you're finishing the, the draft and you hit send for the final time, what comes over you? Like, oh crap, should I've added that? Should I've taken that out? Do you ever second guess yourself? 
No, um, no, not so far. It feels like it. It feels a combination of really good and really low key, at least for me. So it just feels like um, maybe if you found out you passed a big test or or you got admitted to the to the college you wanted to or or you passed um, your detective's exam or whatever it is, like some milestone that is meaningful, but it's not the greatest thing ever. That's kind of how I felt. So I just, when I finished, finished it. And, and um, so we're recording this on October 29th. It's ostensibly coming out November 1st, but I actually uploaded it to Amazon yesterday. So it's actually out in the world. I just sat down and had a, a chocolate mousse cake from uh, Silver Moon Bakery, and uh, that was my my little celebration. My friend Ralph Bartholomew, he wrote a book, Pacific Rims, about basketball, his travel in the Philippines. So I was stoked for your book. Did you have a template or like did you model the book after everything? Because it is a little different. Ah, it's so interesting. I need to read that book because I learned about this great coach in the Philippines, a guy named Tim Cohn, I think his name is. Rafe speaks a lot about him in that book, just so – yeah. So I interviewed for, for my podcast, I interviewed a sports writer the other day, a guy named Roland Lazenby, who wrote a great biography of Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan, the life. And we were talking about the triangle offense that Phil Jackson used to run. And he said that there's this great coach in the Philippines named Tim Cohn, who won like 20 championships <laughs> in the triangle. And uh, so I looked him up on Twitter. He has like 200,000 followers. So, you know, in, in the world of basketball um, in the Philippines, he's he's like the Phil, the Phil Jackson of the Philippines. So yeah, I, need yeah. to, I need to read that book. Sorry, what was the question you asked? Did you uh, have a template or did you model the book after anything? No, it, again, kind of going back to that idea of having been an English teacher, it was just let me outline this. And I, I the first chapter, which is about – so – the, the story is about this high school team that I start coaching, and we go undefeated in the regular season, win every game by double digits, make it to the championship game. This is in Namibia, make it to the city championships, and I, we, we walk into the gym. I know we're going to win. I mean, we just dominated every team we've played, and we lose by four points, and it's a heartbreaker. And there were 10 guys on the team. All 10 played. We ran the platoon system, five in and five out. And six of the guys were seniors. And so we're in the parking lot afterwards. Everyone's crying. It's just a devastating loss. And a few days later, I was talking to the captain, Seppo. His name is Seppo. And I said, what if we took the guys and made a professional team? There's a professional league in, in Namibia called the KBA. What if we made a professional team? So we took this team of teenagers. And he said, and our team name is Blue Devils. And he said, Coach, Blue Devils for life. So we took this team of teenagers, and um, and and it's an amazing story of, of the underdog. So anyway, the first chapter is about our first playoff game in the KBA. And Seppo fouls out. He's the starting point guard. Mike fouls out. He's the backup point guard. And I put at the end of the bench player, this kid named Vincent. And Vincent comes in, and just it's one of those incredible, almost made-for-movie stories he scores eight points in the final 90 seconds and wins the game. And this is a kid, you know, who in a normal, under normal circumstances, wouldn't have played a minute in this playoff game. So I, like when I sat down to start, that was the first thing I wrote up was just that moment. In fact, the chapter is called The Moment. Mm -hmm. And then it was like, OK, now just fill in the backstory. So I knew I had this great moment and then I could I could sort of work backwards from there and then catch up to the to the 
to, to where that we meet that moment again and see what happens going forward. Working backwards in your life, where'd you grow up? Grew up in Vermont and then high school in Baltimore. And what made you decide to join the Peace Corps? Yeah, good question. So my dad had worked for Bobby Kennedy and Ted Kennedy. Um, and of course, their brother, John Kennedy, President Kennedy, had created the Peace Corps in the, in the early 60s. And so there was always that idealism and commitment to service growing up. And so kind of, I would say all through high school, I think, uh, it's tough to go back and remember when, the, when I first had the notion, but all through high school and college, Peace Corps was the goal. And, you know, I, I realize now that doing something like Peace Corps means you, you have a certain level of privilege. Like you can graduate college and essentially work for free for two yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm incredibly, um, I'm cognizant of that privilege and, and um, thankful that I was able to do something like that. And, and that was my first introduction to Namibia. That's how I first um, came to Namibia was as a Peace Corps volunteer. Where did you want to go? Or do you have an option? I don't know if you – where do you want to go? Because I know deep down you're like, I want to go where? Yeah, Kenya. Kenya was where I wanted to go because okay. right after high school – So you wanted tweet, Africa, Ben. You wanted to go yeah. to Africa. Definitely. Okay. Yeah, and you could – at least at the time, this is in the late 90s, you could specify uh, a region where okay. you preferred to be placed. And after high school, the summer between high school and college, first year of college, I did a service program in Kenya. Uh, we were in rural Kenya building a school dormitory. So that was my first time visiting Africa, and Kenya was the country we went to. So I sort of had some experience with Kenya, and I enjoyed it, and so I had Kenya in mind. So I, I requested Africa, and I was hoping for Kenya. And how long were you there? Two years, a little more than two years, actually, with training, and then I stayed on maybe for another two months just hanging out with friends, probably two, two and a half years. And then you come home right into the corporate world, right? What's that? Right to the corporate world when you came back oh, home? Oh, no, no. Came back home and, and um, then joined a program called the Mississippi Teacher Corps. And I taught okay. for two years in the Mississippi Delta, uh, English teacher. And that's where I first became a coach. It was an assistant coach uh, for a championship team there. We won a state championship my first year there. Amazing experience. And then worked at the University of Mississippi for, for years helping to train teachers. And then... The last year I was in the States before I went back to Namibia, I was doing consulting. And that's when I, you know, w was making more money than I'd ever made before and kind of started to get caught up in the in the rat race a little bit. And you knew it was time. Was there like a moment like, OK, this is it for me or was you slowly graduating? Like, I, I got to get out of here. Yeah, I knew I, I was unhappy. And sometimes when when you're unhappy, you don't realize until later, looking back on it, how unhappy you were. But you know, to, to outward appearances, I mean, both when I was in Oxford, Mississippi, and then I was in Atlanta, and then Amherst, Massachusetts, uh, you know, I was living in these nice apartments, big screen TV in the bedroom, big screen TV in the living room, you know, but just come home and, and there's nothing, right? And um, looking back, I realized how unhappy I was for years. And so the finishing my PhD, not having anything not having not being married or having children where I need to be in this place and and so forth, I could go wherever I wanted. And I'd made a great friend in Namibia when I was a volunteer, and I've been back to visit a couple times. And he got married and he named his son after me, Benjamin. Wow. And yeah. So my nickname is Benbo, and we call him Little Benbo. And so I thought, well, 
let me go back. It'd be cool to go back to Namibia for a year or two and watch little Benbow grow up a little bit. And I remember there was an international school in, in the capital, and I just looked it up and sent my resume. And literally within three, three four weeks, I was on a plane to Namibia, and I ended up staying eight years um, just because, you know, I'd sort of rediscovered what life is about, which is about relationships. And in the U.S. especially, we get so caught up in work and having to make money and having to make more money and having to buy more shit. And it doesn't – it's just a hole. It's an endless hole you're going to fill. Uh, now, of course, we need to have a roof over our head and food on the table. But once we have those things, it's about relationships with other people that determine your happiness and your quality of life, at least for me. And that's what I really rediscovered in, in Namibia. And your book is Basketball and Travel. So always a basketball fan growing up? Yeah, it started in high school. Um, so my sister started playing basketball when she was in middle school. My dad put a hoop up in the driveway. And that was I was you know a nerd, a library kid, always you know had my, my nose in a book. And when my dad put that hoop up, I just kind of got addicted to it. And I would go and shoot around all the time and then started playing pickup with my friends. And that's how I got into it. And also it was the early 90s. So kind of the bulls when they were mm-hmm. at their first uh, in their first three-peat in heyday. And so it was a great time to in the Knicks, of course. I know you're a Knicks fan. The Knicks, of, uh, especially the 94 Knicks, um, it were this close. Uh, so, you know, that's <sighs> when I got into basketball. And who was your team, though? I know you mentioned the Bulls. Who was your guy and who was your team? Yeah, so I grew up, you know, up until high school in Vermont. So I, I kind of adopted the Boston Celtics, you know, New England. Okay. And my, my favorite team when I first got into basketball was the 93 Celtics, which was the first year after Larry Bird retired. And, and actually, a couple of years later, it was the same thing with the 94 Bulls after Jordan retired for the first time. Where you have sort of a team that they lose their best player, lose one of the all-time greats, but they still have great teamwork and defense, and they're still pretty successful. And that was the 93 Celtics. And they um, were the fourth seed in the Eastern Conference. They're playing Charlotte. And then unfortunately in that first playoff game is when Reggie Lewis collapsed and never played again and and died over that summer from a, a heart issue. And so... Uh, you know, that was kind of the end of, of that team's run, you know, losing Larry Bird and then Reggie Lewis was their best player, losing Reggie Lewis the following year and Kevin McHale to retirement. But that team was so scrappy. We picked up Xavier McDaniel from mm-hmm. your Knicks and just had a, a toughness and a teamwork and a camaraderie about him that I really loved. Now, you said you were a nerdy dude always in the books. Did you always mm-hmm. enjoy the coaching aspects of it? Because you mentioned how you went to coaching clinics and you followed coaches. Mm-hmm. So you always – Listen, I watched the game just screaming and yelling at the players, but you looked at it from a different perspective coaching-wise also, right? Yeah, it's interesting. So when I first started coaching in my 20s, I really loved the X's and O's, and I loved the feeling. And this is you know, part of the problem, um, part of my problem as a young coach, and I think a lot of young coaches have this. I love the feeling of like outsmarting the other coach. So I remember there was a coach, um, I forget the name of the school now, this is you know almost 15 years ago, no, more than 15, 18 years ago, um, but he always pressed. And so you know, just practicing a press breaker and being able to, to utilize one particular aspect of it at the end of the game to win the game, like it felt like, like chess almost, like mm-hmm. I outsmarted you. And that's what I was caught up with as a young coach, um, the X's and O's and wins and losses. And I didn't focus on the relationships. 
as I got older, I realized it's the relation, like I was saying earlier, it's the relationships that matter, not, not the other stuff. And strangely enough, when I focused on relationships and the bigger picture of coaching, I won more than I ever had. So it became much less about the X's and O's and, and although those things are important and, and we certainly worked on that, but I just became much more attuned to the bigger picture, which is as a coach, you're trying to help your players be better, be better at the game and hopefully learn some life lessons and be better people. And you're open to um, that process being both ways where your players help you be a better coach and help you be a better person. When you hear the word Zen and coaching, it's Phil Jackson. That's it. It's Zen coaching Phil Jackson. When did you get that philosophy? And many people do roll their eyes. Oh, meditation, the game, blah, blah, blah. Off the court, how'd that speak to you and how'd you get into that? Yeah, I owe a big debt of gratitude to Phil Jackson. Not that I've ever met him or interacted with him or anything, but he, he early on was modeling a different way to coach. And he would do things that I ended up adopting, like call a timeout. And then just let the players talk and let them work it out or not call a timeout if the team was struggling and just say, hey, they got themselves into this mess. Let themselves get them get them out of it. Um, They have to learn sort of on the fly. And, of course, meditation. And so he wrote a number of books, but his first book was called Sacred Hoops about coaching, wrote a number of books. And he wrote that book. It probably came out in 96. And I read it as soon as it came out. And that really spoke to me. And at that time, I wasn't even thinking about coaching, but. That really spoke to me in his um, his messaging about meditation and how meditation had helped him spoke to me. Now, it still took me years before I got into meditation. But when I did, it was and I say this all the time, meditation is the most helpful thing I've done as an adult. When you took meditation, I'm an antsy guy. I'm walking around and then you hear I don't have time. I'm bored. I just don't get it. Explain to me, people listening. Not the pros of it, because you always hear the pros of it. How can someone like me get into it who is antsy? I'm always moving around. I'm like, all right, come on, this is bored. How long do I have to meditate for? I'm always on the move. How do you, I get into it and grasp it? Sure. We've all been in flow states, right, where just we feel like we're in the groove. And whatever it is we're dealing with, we're just able to handle it. So meditation is kind of like giving you the tools to access that flow state. Sometimes I describe it as it's like a, a warm shower for your brain. The best thing about meditation is it's free. It requires no equipment and you can do it anywhere. And anybody can just sit for a minute or two and focus on their breathing. Take a deep breath in through your nose, deep breath out through your mouth and just feel how your body relaxes a little bit. And in this day and age, especially with the last 18 months of this pandemic, there's just been so much stress, so much sort of just low level stress at at all times that a tool like meditation or even just focusing on your breathing for one minute, which is its own meditation, you can feel physically, physiologically, the impact that's having on your body already of just, okay, let me just calm down a little bit. And in in this life, in this world, that's a great tool to have. You're a calm, tranquil dude. White guy from Vermont in Africa coaching. How do you get these guys to trust you? That was my biggest thing. And not only trust you, like, hey, let's run this play, X's and O's. Guys, we're going to meditate before a game. It's like, who is this guy? Like, how do you even – how did that happen and how they trust you? Yeah, that's a great question because it's totally – especially in Namibia, which still – you know, I think in terms of coaching philosophy, it's probably 10 or 20 years 
behind where a lot of youth sports are now here in the States. So it's very much old school, very much the coach is in charge. The coach is going to slap you on the back of the head if you mess up. You're going to be running sprints, running suicides. Um, and the number one thing is the coach, you have to do whatever the coach says. And that was a model that, again, I totally rejected. And to the players, all of this just seemed crazy. And I had no authority other than at this local public school, I'd been helping out with the girls team and the head coach of the girls team said, you know, the, the boys coach just got a scholarship to Germany. They need a coach. Are you interested? And, you know, I'd never thought about being a head coach again after I'd kind of flamed out in my 20s in Mississippi. And I said, yeah. And and so he just the first day he, he this coach came to practice, he said, guys, here's your new coach. And that was the only authority that I had was the the girls coach had said to the guys, <laughs> here's your new coach. And then at that point, it's just about building relationships. And I think one of the things that I got wrong as a young coach and a lot of coaches mm -hmm. get wrong, and especially when they're younger, is not showing vulnerability, not being honest, not being your authentic self. And I'm sure you see this all the time. People... When they're not authentic, you see through it. And and players, if, if, if you're trying to coach in a manner that's not authentic to who you are, they will see that right away and then you're done. So I just carried those lessons of, of being honest and saying we're going to try to do things. We're going to do things differently and, you know, saying I don't know that I ever said I don't know if it's going to work or not. I was kind of wondering in my mind, <laughs> but just just being open and honest and the guys to their credit, gave it a chance. Mm -hmm. And then our first game, we won by 30 points. And then our second game, this is in the high school league, our second game, we played a, a really good team and we won by 10 points. And that was the moment. That was when they were like, okay, this stuff like the platoon system where I would just sub five in, five out, um, calling the huddle and then letting the guys talk and meditating. That was when they were like, okay, this shit might work because we just beat uh, you know, one of the best teams in the in the league. And so that was the the big buy-in moment. And I write about this in the book. If that moment had, if we'd lost, which could have happened, if we'd lost that game, it was going to be back to square one in terms of sort of building up trust in relationships again, because they tried it and it didn't work. Now, in real life, we know that sometimes you can do the right thing and it doesn't work out for you. But I was a uh, combination of lucky and these techniques actually do work where we won that big game, that second game, and then at that moment, the players were all in. Let me ask you a question now. You've had great success, high school coach of the year. I'm not going to spoil the way the book ends and stuff. You had success out there. Why don't many coaches now – listen, I'm a, the biggest Kentucky basketball fan. So first of all, when you tell me platoon system, it, it, it makes me want to cry when Calipari did that. We didn't right. win the best team of all time, and we didn't – That was it. when Anthony Davis was there, right? No, yeah. the year before, that was oh. the blue-white. They won the championship with Davis. It was two years later, and they had the 10 top recruits, and he just oh, did the wow. blue and white. And Oh, my God, please. Anyway, That's so cool. uh, why don't more coaches take the whole – I hate to say zen-like, but you became like, let's become proficient in that skill. Let's really focus on that skill – preaching family and i know cal power is like oh la familia but you preach it you preach relationships why don't many coaches have that calm effect and do it? you don't even coach k who's the greatest you still see him flip out during a game which obviously you're going to show emotion why don't more people show that like relax calm down take it this way 
Yeah, I think it's two things. I think one, it's what's been modeled. And so, and I, and I write about going to Coach K's basketball clinic in the book and also Bob Knight's clinic at Texas Tech, his first year at Texas Tech. So Coach, Coach K played for Bob Knight, mm-hmm. right? That's what was modeled for Coach K. That's what he then models to his players. And he's been incredibly successful. And, and I, I do think that Coach K has done a great job building relationships with his players. And you listen to interviews with his former players, and they all love him. But it's also still very much that command and control model of coaching. You do what I say. If you mess up, you're on the line. We're running suicides. You know, the team is going to be punished. And uh, that was a model that I came to reject. So I think it's what's been modeled for a lot of current coaches. It's how they grew up. It's what they're familiar with. And two, it just looks totally different from what we think of as coaching. And I think, and I had a player uh, on another team tell me this once, that the way he thinks of a coach is, it's like a video game controller. The coach is there on the sidelines controlling the game. And I just, I reject that entire notion. I think it's, as a coach, you try to create parameters in an environment where the team can learn to trust each other, to have fun, learn the game, and then it's hands off. And by the time the game starts, I sit down on the bench, 95% of my coaching is done. You do your coaching in practice. That's where coaching's done. And other than maybe one or two adjustments, needing to call a timeout here or there, it's let the players play, and you've created the the parameters of what you want to do, and then it's about them learning and them going out and succeeding. But that looks totally different. And you can imagine in college or the pros, if a first-year or second-year coach called a timeout and then didn't go in the huddle (laughs) – he lost like, control. Announce- he lost the team. Yeah. Announcers, um, the reporters afterwards, media, Twitter, whatever. The person would just be crucified. Every now and again, you'll see um, Greg Popovich will do mm-hmm. that. Steve Kerr did it famously for an entire game, I think, and let like Draymond and Andre Iguodala um, coach the team. And But, you know, other than these – and you see Bill Belichick in football will sometimes make the correct decision – that's totally against um, kind of what traditional coaching says. Years ago, I remember he did a, I think they allowed a safety so they could get the ball back. Mm-hmm. But if, 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 if it's not a coach who already has been incredibly successful and kind of has the cachet to be able <laughs> to do that, you're not going to be able to get away with it, even though it's the, the coaches that have tried it, people like Phil Jackson or myself, have been – incredibly successful with these techniques but it just looks so different that people are scared to try it you said coaching should be joyous it seemed like you enjoyed it why'd you stop coaching yeah i I did it i stopped coaching so we, we continued for two more years after the book and it just became a combination of so time consuming and expensive so uh the professional league Guys didn't make much money. I, I had my last year I had 15 players, and I just gave them each 50 bucks a month just to help with groceries or help a little bit with rent or taxi money to get to the games or whatever it was. So very little money, but as a university lecturer, that's not a lot of money. You don't have a lot of money coming in, <laughs> and and then also, I would just think about basketball all the time. You know, I I never could really unplug, even with meditation and so forth. I became much less 
concerned or bothered by wins and losses or losses, but I still just thought about the game and obsessed over it all the time. And so, and, and then we had practice every night or a game. And so it was just a combination of so much time and um, it was costing money. And there are other things to do in life besides coach basketball, even though I loved it. And it was actually great, Mike, because then the, the years after I stopped coaching, I would just go to the games on Friday or Saturday night. Every team had at least one of my players, and I would just cheer for my players. And I didn't care who won or who lost. You know, I get to talk to them before the game or after the game and just see my guys, how they'd improved, how they were doing in the league, and just cheer for my guys. And it, that was really like the best of both worlds. How famous are the players there itself? Listen, obviously they're not marketable guys. Like in the Philippines where basketball is like, how famous are the players there, local guys? You guys win a title. You guys win a few games. How famous? Yeah, the basketball community is is small but intense in Namibia. So uh, Namibia, basketball is sort of a third-tier sport. The big sports mm-hmm. are soccer, rugby, boxing. Then after those three sports, you have basketball. But it's, it's growing in popularity, especially because now three-on-three, international three-on-three basketball is really big. And I think it's an Olympic sport or it's going to be an Olympic mm-hmm. sport now. So Namibia actually has a bunch of great three-on-three teams. So it's growing in popularity. So, But I would say outside the basketball world of Namibia, players aren't well-known, even though the games are on TV, some of the, especially the playoff games and the finals are on TV. But within the basketball community, everybody knows each other for sure. And there's like a thriving, you know, oh, there's always like social media stuff and, and, and things like that. You glow when you talk about basketball there and the players there. Mm-hmm. Writing this book, how awesome was it bringing back memories of writing this book? It's like, oh, my God, this happened, this player. How cool is that for you? Yeah, it was great. And I was lucky because I had most of the games videotaped. So I could go back and watch the games and pick out little details. And you got to post things. some of those up. I know. I'm, I'm going to do that, you know, as part of the, the marketing for the. Or I'm going to try to make a little trailer anyway yeah. for, the, for the marketing. The, I heard a great line the other day from a former editor at ESPN, and he said, when you're interviewing a famous person, famous athlete, or doing a feature on a famous athlete, you try to make them human, try to make them down to earth, relatable. And when you're um, writing a feature about someone who's unknown, you try to make them larger than life. And so that was... In retrospect, that was one of the things I really enjoyed about writing the book is taking um, the players, both my guys and players on the other teams, and taking this league, which is a professional league, but is in the grand scheme of things, it's just a, a tiny blip on the world international basketball stage and making it all, you know, just, I mean, it, it all happened, obviously, but just kind of making it grander and, and making it this big thing um, that's the subject of a book. Uh, it felt really good. I told you when I'm reading this book, I'm like, this guy must have loved writing this because you were talking about bringing Vincent off the bench and it set your words popped off the pages and you felt excitement reading it. You really did, man. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Vincent is great. So Vincent is the guy who scores eight points in the last 80 <laughs> seconds of the first playoff game of his entire life, 17 <laughs> years old in this professional league. And and one of the best things is the next day in so and Vincent was a backup shooting guard, but he, he was not a good shooter, which is why he was on the bench. And so he hit two three, hit back to back threes, and then the game winning layup, eight points in eight in eighty seconds. So the next day in practice, uh, at the end of practice, and this kind of goes back to the camaraderie and the relationships. You know, we're just all kind of standing around. 
and I, I say, Vincent, I give him the ball and I have everybody clear out. So obviously in the game, he's being defended and he's coming off a pick and roll or, you know, he's getting a pass and hitting a shot with a hand in his face. And I said, no, no defense. Vincent, just recreate the three shots you hit last night or two nights ago in the playoff game. And he misses all three. <laughs> <laughs> and we just, including Vincent, everybody just dies laughing. Um, and that was really like, that was one of the key moments when I think about um, the team was both that moment, right? But then the next day and how much how much love there was amongst the team that, you know, we just all you know, were, were good natured and, and, and just loved being around each other. I know traveling has put like a, a cap on a lot of people on um, the pandemic has put a cap on a lot of traveling. Have you been back there yet? And any plans to go back? No, I mean, if the pandemic hadn't happened, you know, I never would have resigned from my job. I never would have written this book. You and I wouldn't be talking and I'd still be there. I, I, I really loved living in Namibia and um, like I said, I was I was happy and, and, you know, had had a great life filled with great relationships. So the pandemic happens. I resign. Then my visa ends in um, end of April 2021. So I have to come home. And all all up until then, Namibia had been relatively safe during the pandemic. And, you know, things here were, were really bad for a while and then got better than the vaccinations. So I was going back to privilege. I was able to fly back to the U.S., literally get my first jab the next day and then about two weeks later delta hits namibia and just it was awful and um a woman that i worked with at the university in, in the same faculty of education who used to sit next to in faculty meetings died oh. my best friend his sister died um his other sister was in icu he got it his wife got it and so it just it's this really weird feeling mike of like feeling gratitude and guilt at the same time, right? Like I was, I, I had the privilege where I was able to sort of ride out the virus there when it was bad here and then leave there and come back here and get vaccinated. And then it got bad there. And now things thankfully are much better in Namibia. There's some vaccination going on mostly with um, the Chinese vaccine. And then there's probably just a lot of, um, naturally acquired immunity because mm -hmm. Delta did rip through the entire country. So yes, it's, I definitely want to go back. Um, not the least of which to see, I mean, number one, to see my God kids, uh, including little Benjamin. And I don't know when that's going to happen. You know, it's, it's, if this last 18 months has shown us anything, you can't really predict what's going to happen. Travel wise, how long do you recommend someone going there for without going, you know, you can go to Ireland for, Oh, you go there for two months. How long realistically do you uh, suggest someone going there for? Yeah, the number one thing, the, the the top two things, one of course is the animals, right? Going on safari, going to to the game parks and the game lodges. That stuff, I don't know if that ever gets old. Mm -hmm. Especially just so the 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 biggest um, game park in Namibia is called Itosha, uh, and it's just this huge area, um, government protected area where there's everything, right? All the big five lions and elephants and everything. And so you go out during the day and you drive around or you have a guide that takes you around, but at night you just sit, um, where the, where the, uh, it's not hotel rooms, but where like the little cabins are, there's a water hole and you can just sit and there's a barrier, a fence, and then you, there's seating. And you can just sit at the water hole and it's like the fucking Lion King comes to oh. life. 
like, you know, every animal has a certain time they kind of come there. And then, you know, so you might have the zebra there, but then if the elephants come, the zebra have to get out and the elephants take their time. They leave and the lions come in. And it, I mean, I could do that every night for a month. Like <laughs> it's like having, you know, an I'm the biggest IMAX screen, right? But it's real. And actually my, my parents and my godparents came out to visit uh, and they're all in their 70s. And I remember like one time we were in a hide with a guide. So like, a, um, and the lions came out and, and uh, my godfather, Robert, he's like, oh, and I was like, Robert, <laughs> this is not a movie. <laughs> like, you can't do that with the animals. <laughs> um, and the second thing, so that's the first thing. Uh, and the second thing is, Namibia has these great deserts. Um, the movie Mad Max Fury Road was filmed in those deserts. And they have deserts that go right into the sea. And they have desert elephants that will climb the dunes. And they have helicopter footage of this you can see on YouTube. They'll climb the dunes and then they'll surf. They'll like body surf. Elephants body surf down the dunes. It's amazing. So those are the two must-see things if you go to Namibia. So I, I think 10 days is good. You know, have have like one or two days to get acclimated in Windhoek, that's the mm -hmm. capital, and then to the north are the game lodges, and to the south is the desert. So you do like two, three days in the desert, which is amazing. You can you can spend the night kind of out under the stars at like these, you know, sort of luxury um, lodges, but they, they have these beds that they roll out and you just see the stars. It's amazing. And then you need like at least a week at the game park just to see everything. I've never been there yet. So if you're going to go there in 2022, I'm serious too. I don't just say that. I'll come with you. If you're going to go there in 2022, sound good? Let's make a plan. Right, let's, fi let's finish up with some quick hit questions. You ready? Yeah. Yeah, go you ahead. And I, you and I are at a bar in New York where we should be. Who's the coolest person in your phone that if you texted them, they would text you right back? Oh, that's a great question. Who's the coolest person in my phone? Uh, I have a, a great friend, one of my closest friends, went to college with guy named Hector. Uh, he's an ER doc in Brooklyn. And uh, he's just somebody that, that I've always thought is is just one of the it's coolest cool, right? people okay. I know. Yeah. Yep. So Hector. Last show you binge watched? Oh, um, good question. Ted Lasso. Ted Lasso was, is Was amazing. that good? I heard it's awesome. Okay. I haven't watched it yet. Yeah. I heard it was awesome. Mike, Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, Ted Lasso. <laughs> if, if you do those two things after this interview, you will be a happy person. Weirdest thing you ate out in Africa? Mmm, Mopani worms. Worms. Yeah. <laughs> Raw or cooked? They're cooked. They're like fried. They're like flash fried. And they're they're for, for the majority tribe there, the Obambo tribe. That that's a delicacy. Uh not a delicacy if if you're from Vermont. Yeah. And what's next for you? You want to continue writing? You wanna what do you want to do next? Yeah, good question. So I have a, a writing project I'm working on right now with a, a retired NBA player. That, that, that's that been a really enjoyable project to work on. And I was telling you off air, I'm just kind of in this process of, of writing these two books um, and publishing, self-publishing them. I've kind of advised a number of people. And lately, you know, I'll have an hour or half hour phone call with somebody. And at the end, they'll say, well, you know, could I keep getting advice from you? Can I pay you for this? <laughs> so I think I'm maybe going to start a little sort of boutique book consultancy business and just help people either with the planning process, with ghostwriting, with editing, or with advising on how to, how to self-publish. So I think that's, that's the next step.
I think it's great because so many people, whether the story be large or small, has a story. And what's the same thing? How do I start? What? How do I do it? What you being that link can make so many people's dreams come true. So many people want to write their stuff, man. I'm telling you, that's what we need to do. Exactly. And so many people, everybody has a story to share, right? We're all human. There's a great line by Maya Angelou. I'm human. Therefore, nothing human is alien to me. I mean, I can relate to anybody's story and anybody can relate to my story. And so for, for people out there, everybody has a story to tell. And a piece of great advice I read somewhere, I can't remember where, I wish I could attribute it, is just start with you at your most vulnerable. If you do that on page one, then the audience is going to be all in. And then you can share your story. And then sharing your specific, particular story, it becomes universal. And the lessons that you've learned along the way, other people can learn from reading your story. Give the plug, because now the book is officially out. Give the plug where everyone can buy it, where people can follow you, and all that jazz. The book is Zen and the Art of Coaching Basketball, Memoir of a Namibian Odyssey. And it's on Amazon as an ebook, as a paperback, and as a hardcover. And if you're interested in sports, basketball, coaching, or travel, or things like meditation and how meditation can, can improve and impact your life, this is the book for you. And I'm on Twitter at BeGuest. Uh, so oh, and then I have a, a weekly newsletter, benbow.substack.com where I interview and interview other authors and write about writing, editing, and self-publishing. So that's Benbo, B-E-N-B-O dot substack dot com. And totally brother, free. Bro, this was a blast. Since we're both in the city, we have to link up. We'll do this from a bar again. We'll chat more about travel and basketball and Celtic and Knicks. Sounds good? All of it. Looking forward to it, Mike. Bro, this was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, my friend. And good luck and congratulations again. Great. Thank you so much. See you later, my friend. Okay, bye-bye. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.